Welcome back to another episode of a podcast written by a software engineer. I'm your host, Parent. Today, boy, do we got a guest for you. I'm with Dan Moore. Dan, how are you? Very good. Thank you for having me, Perry. Oh, honestly, it's our absolute pleasure to even like be able to, you know, pick out your brain a bit. Because if I'm not mistaken, you've been in the tech world for the, what, past 20 years now? About 20 years. Yeah, maybe a little bit longer now. I'm like even wondering what I was doing 20 years ago. <laughs> like, I think it's a completely different landscape. So I think like the pleasure is really us to just really see the, you know, the difference from what it looks like today. And, you know, compared to see what we've done in the past and what we can do in the future, honestly. But um, I guess for the people not too familiar with what you're doing nowadays, you want to give us a brief description of what, you know, what you've been working on and like what other cool stuff that's been going on nowadays for you? Sure. So I would say there's a couple cool things going on right now for me. Uh, first is I have a great day job where I am a developer relations um, person, uh, head of developer relations, I think is the technical term or the title. And there I am working for a company called Fusion Auth, and we are kind of an Auth Zero or an Okta competitor. Um, we provide an identity server as a, as a service. And to me, it's just really exciting because it's actually, you spoke about the 20 years in tech, it actually feels like a culmination of that for me because it lets me do a bunch of things that I've really found that I've enjoyed over the years. And that includes, you know, hacking at example applications, um, working on documentation, writing, public speaking, uh, interfacing with customers and community. And so I'm super excited about this position, which is, it's a relatively new career shift for me. Uh, previously, I've been a developer, engineering manager, trainer, but this is, uh, DevRel is pretty new for me. And the other exciting thing for me is I have a side project called Letters to New Developer. And I had, that's both a free blog and a book that you can purchase if you choose to. And that's been a real fun experience to me for a couple of reasons. One is, first of all, it's just fun to share my lessons because basically the premise is it's things that I wish I'd known when I was starting out about software and business in general. And then second of all, just to have every so often, you know, when you're writing something like this, sometimes you're yelling into the void, it feels like, but every so often I'll talk to somebody who says, oh yeah, that really made a difference or wow, that was a really perceptive letter or thank you for doing this. It's such a great resource. And that, you know, makes me feel really good because that's, that's the main reason I did, did this side project is to really help other developers avoid mistakes that I made and get better quicker. I think, honestly, the word I'm going to be throwing out so many times today is probably going to be the word relatable. Just because I think the just the last bit you were describing on like just eating, even putting some resources out there where you know one person out there might benefit or enjoy from your past experience. I honestly feel the same whenever I get to talk to other people like this or even produce like simple podcast episodes like this. I think it's 100% relatable, especially on my end. And then if anybody else is, you know, inspired to do similarly, go for it. I think like this, this kind of like natural high is probably how I describe it at the end of the day. But... I mean, yeah, even just the, the brief intro that we've got from you, it's, there's so many cool stuff we could talk about. Even the term DevRel or like Dev Advocate at the end of the day, like this term has somewhat been mysterious, but I feel like it's something that everybody really benefits off of. So I can't wait to dive into, I guess, what exactly does that entail, uh, what you do today. But I mean, what could be really interesting as well is that, I mean, with all those excite, exciting different positions that you've done throughout the years, I think it's good to kind of like fill in the gaps, right? 
Um, as in, let, let's figure out if Dan has always been like a techie guy from, from the get-go or like maybe Dan has been, you know, had different influences and different passions before. So one thing I'd be quite curious is that um, in terms of like influences and like passions in life, were you like always like a techie kind of person or what, what, what did that look like? Sure, sure. Um, I would say that I have always had a bent towards computers since I'd say, I don't know, third or fourth grade. Um, I, you know, I was thinking about like my, my past influences and I would kind of call it two. The first is uh, being kind of exposed to computers and business at an early age. Uh, I worked for my parents' insurance company. They had a small insurance company. And uh, the story I tell often is that it, they had this system. Legally, they were required to send out notices every time someone's policy was about to expire, you know, a month before, because the person had to know so that they could decide whether they wanted to renew the policy or not. And when I got in there, I think it was maybe seventh or eighth grade, we, they were basically cutting and pasting email uh, letters, because this was back in the days when you had to write formal letters. Um, and so they were cutting and pasting these documents. And I got in there and I said, oh man, this is really miserable to do this. And so I ended up building a small database and then doing mail merge and mail merge basically like took the, the, the letter, the template and kind of plugged in the, the different data for each person. And then we were able to print it out and it still was kind of a miserable task because you had to fold it and stamp it and all that stuff. But at least you didn't cut and paste a bunch. And to me, that kind of opened my eyes up really toward, to the power of software and computers to reduce human toil. And toil is, you know, used now in the DevOps world a lot, but I think that there's just a lot, a ton of miserable tasks that humans do uh, because the software's not written for it. And that was a small, obviously a very small example, but that really showed to me how powerful software can be. So that's kind of one influence. And then the second one I would say would be um, permaculture. And I don't know, are you familiar with the, with permaculture, Perry? I'm not too familiar with that, actually. What, what, would, what would that be? Cool. Yeah, so it's a, it's a system of design, and uh, it's heavily influenced by uh, the native peoples of Australia and um, other native peoples around the world. And basically, the idea is that you want to, you can build systems that are better uh, by combining by looking for patterns, by combining inputs and outputs. And typically it's used in a landscaping um, uh, context, like permaculture comes from permanent agriculture. So the idea is it's different than kind of the, the monoculture agriculture that is prevalent in the, in the world today. But it also kind of talks about designing systems around, and, and those could be agricultural systems, but they could also be human systems, financial systems. And so to me, that really kind of drove home like the power of thinking in systems and looking at kind of the bigger picture and trying to make sure that you can get multiple, um, that you can match up waste and, uh, or not waste, but like match up uh, outputs and inputs across different parts of your system. So I think that is what kind of turned me from being like that, that learning more and more about that. And I, I have a couple of certificates in that kind of pushed me away from being just kind of a developer focused on code to kind of thinking about the more holistic uh, business aspects that all software engineers are embedded in. Yes. I mean, even from the get-go, like these kind of 
truthy advices like slowly flowing in like I always enjoy them to begin with just because um I really do enjoy the anecdotes that you brought up in terms of, like the influences first of all family influence is always a good approach I've heard so many engineers before that uh, just like you know anecdotes through earlier in their lives kind of like snowballed the whole thing and next thing you know like the mindset sets in the other thing I do want to bring up when you're talking about this ingenuity mindset of breaking down a bigger problem bigger system to smaller problems to solve um if it does like kind of influence your actions day to day. I think it really does help as a software engineer at the end of the day, just because a lot of the, you know, realistic problems we tackle nowadays is kind of similar at the end. So I um, always love hearing those kind of influences, uh, especially if it's a, you know, really good family anecdote at the end. And I also find it quite funny that uh, when, you're, when you're talking about those <laughs> paper that you had to deal with, it's like, oh, why is this so like, you know, like big hassle to deal with. I find it so ironic that nowadays, like you end up writing a book as well, which is like big congrats on that. Cause I do, it's a really big task to do, but it's kind of like a full circle where like, even from back then it's already like quite present uh, in, your, in your day to day to begin with. So that's actually really cool. I didn't even think about that kind of like tying back to like a, a physical book, but that's a, that's a really insightful comment for sure. Yeah. And obviously like, we'll definitely dive into it. Cause for all the people who are, even just thinking about getting into the path of being a software developer, even are already in the path of software, de uh, software developers, sorry. There's so many golden nuggets from like anything you could learn from that. So, um, but one thing that you did mention actually was um, when you're talking about this, you know, uh, exposure already to all these like different tech and finding, you know, even making a database kind of thing. Um, was there a, like an educational like influence back then as well? Like as in... Like a normal topic nowadays would be, uh, I can speak for myself, like I went to university and I did a computer science degree, which is, I guess, slowly getting a bit more common nowadays than it was at least like 10, 15 years ago. Um, was that kind of like a similar path that you had in terms of education? Was it like quite technical or was it just completely, I guess, non-related to, to that? Yeah, so I ended up, uh, I, I went to college at a small liberal arts school in Washington State and I got a Bachelor of Arts in Physics. And the main reason I did that is I wanted to be a, to write science fiction. So I wanted to go to a place where I could learn how to write and then I could also learn some science. And um, after my freshman year, I actually did an internship with a family friend where I was taking um, software that was store uh, basically I was putting software onto onto floppy disk drives to help. Uh, basically, it was like Netscape Navigator, which is like the precursor to Firefox, and it was to help teachers get online. So it was like other software that let them dial in or or whatnot. And then my sophomore year, I did a physics internship uh, in the summer, and then my senior year, my junior year, I did a uh, kind of a physics slash software engineering one where I was doing um, visualizations in Java with um, with uh, that they were physics visualizations. And so, you know, what kind of became clear to me over the years is that physics uh, was fun and interesting. And I think the first couple of years were really great for teaching me rigorousness. Uh, but late, like as I kind of progressed through my college career, I just I did more and more stuff with software. My senior thesis in physics was actually again, building a simulation in, on, on the computer. Um, actually, it was a network of computers. And, um, you know, it, it, software just solved problems and it was way more interesting to be in physics. And the, the, uh, like, the thing I loved about first and second year physics was it was all about solving problems. And I guess, you know, definitely third and fourth year were still about solving problems, but they got more and more esoteric. Whereas I feel like software, uh, 
you could really make a dent in the world without getting a PhD, I guess would be one way to put it. So didn't start, didn't get a CS degree. And, and actually that's an interesting thing to talk about. I feel like there's a ton of people coming out into software that don't have a CS degree. And I was one of those people in the early 2000s. And I think that you, you have strengths and weaknesses when that's true. I think that you, your weaknesses are kind of some of the fundamentals around like, uh, you know, memory time trade-offs, um, algorithms, uh, big O notation, you know, things like that, like formalisms. But I think your strengths are if you kind of come to software because you love it or because you've learned it on your own, you're going to have a more intrinsic fire, I think, in some ways than someone who maybe was um, handed bits of software knowledge in a more formal system by the university. So, You know what? Like, I really like that topic just because like we're really here from both ends. Uh, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm coming from the side where like I did do a formal CS degree, but I could bet you nowadays that I could name you so many more, I guess, competent, productive, impressive engineers that don't have a CS degree at the end. Uh, what I'm trying to put out there is that like having a CS degree is definitely not like the justification of being a great engineer at the end of the day. As we're saying, in terms of having the drive and the knowledge and even just the will to like whether backfill these conception of like CS concepts at the end of the day, it's really on you. And at the end of the day, anybody I think could do it with the right resources at the end. So I 100% love this topic of, you know, CS degrees versus no CS degrees. I, and I will say, you know, I mean, I'll be honest with you. Like, I think you, you've raised a really good point. You have to be willing to find the knowledge that you need and be aware of the knowledge to, to do your job. And if you are a front-end engineer, um, you know, cranking out React code or a DevOps person um, at a typical company, you probably don't necessarily need that really deep knowledge of algorithms or, or whatnot, it, unless you need it to get higher, right, which is a whole different topic. Uh, but you know, if you are writing compilers for uh, Intel, right, or for Microsoft, then you're probably going to need those. So I think that it's good to recognize that there's a ton of work in technology that doesn't require a CS degree, and that in some ways a CS degree can actually be a, a hindrance for. There's also a ton of work in technology that requires one. So uh, if you love like formalisms and and theory. Uh, go get a CS degree, just realize that being a, having a CS degree doesn't mean that you're going to be a developer, right? Like that's a, that's a nice starting point, but there's a ton of other things that really go into being a developer beyond being able to program. I wholeheartedly agree. Even the term, like even the industry, sorry, like the tech industry, like when you're comparing like a, you know, a software engineer, front end engineer, or like a system reliability engineer or like a security engineer like it's so vast that like i don't think a you know just justifying yourself that oh i got a cs degree means that you could do all of them definitely not it's definitely gonna be hands-on on it so i think one of the cool thing um that we could definitely look at is that everybody who is practicing any kind of software like web development or any kind of technology development at the moment have their own unique story their unique background at the end and i i keep on pushing the fact that anybody could do it if they really really love into it they're not going to notice it by the time they're into that so funny enough actually i do have a friend who kind of did a similar path who kind of end up getting a um ba in physics and they are you know software engineering nowadays as well so i really do like the presence of that uh whenever whenever you see people tackling different problems actually but um what I do want to know is that from that point, then you ended up getting like a BA in physics and then uh, you already had all this great influence in terms of like working with tech, 
building, I guess, different databases and models to, to help, you know, just daily life problems. Um, do, you, do you remember the first like professional tech job that you ever got then from that point? Definitely, definitely. So I actually, it's funny, it was a formative company for me, and I'm still friends with some of my colleagues from it. Uh, it was called XOR, and I, uh, they actually were a small consulting company that the family friend that I had um, worked for after my freshman year, his organization had consulted, had, had contracted with them. So I had a connection there and he introduced me and they offered me an internship uh, right in uh, summer 99. And so it was kind of the peak of dot-com craziness, dot-com mania. And I, I came to the, the consulting company. It was a 60-person company when I joined it. And then when I left two or three years later, it was maybe it peaked out at 600 and then was back down to like two or 300 so we went through a couple of mergers, a couple of layoffs, and I, I really saw, you know, I, I definitely have had different seats at the table during my career. And there I definitely saw like the junior developer wants to get stuff done, um, doesn't understand what's going on with the uppity ups, doesn't understand how, how deals get sold or how, how products get made um, and Frankly, I, I kind of was petulant about it. I was a, a bit of a bitcher and a moaner about um, not understanding those things and thinking like my job was the most important one because I was the one writing code. And um, yeah, but I, I always tell people that I think a small consulting company is a great place to start their career if they don't have a certain, uh, their software career, if they don't have like a, a certain goal, right? If you want to like build uh, self-driving cars, don't start a small consulting company. But if you aren't sure, a small consulting company will let you get this wide swath of experience. And because it's because it's a consulting company, it'll be a wide swath of experience. And because it's a small company, what you do will actually matter, right? You'll actually get a chance to know the CEO or talk to the salespeople if you want to, as opposed to going and working at a big consulting company where you'll be, you know, handed stuff, but you won't really necessarily be able to see your um, see your impact in the same way. So that's where I that's that was the first job I had after school, and I remember um, just being super excited about learning a ton of stuff. Um, one thing I will say is I did make a mistake there. I didn't go out to lunch with people, and I think that I would have a had a better time there if I'd spent more time on building the social relationships that I ended up doing later through different other means. But I remember the first six months I was there, I would, I was saving money. So I would bring my lunch every day and just eat out on the, in the sun on the, um, you know, by the parking lot, there was a spot where I could sit. And that was penny wise pound foolish because other people were making relationships and getting to know each other in a personal way. And that's really important to, to, being happy at your job is has been my experience and being successful in your job. Yeah, I think w even walking down memory lane, there's so many, I mean, like, as you speak, like these flashbacks of like hitting me when I started my first, like, you know, official tech job kind of thing. So many similarities, even across, I guess, like different decades at the end. Um, one of the things is like when you mentioned the lunch thing, I was like, what what is the agreed lunch etiquette, you know, just because like so many people have their own thing, but like I could definitely double emphasize on the point where like some, it seems meaningless when you hang out during lunch and when you talk to other people, but 
when you look back or even when you look at where you are today with like sometimes with a really good friend or like really good people, it probably started from one of those like meaning meaningless moments, sorry. Um, this kind of like immersion of the osmosis of like just being there. So um, I think like when we talk about lunch etiquette is yeah, sure, do whatever you want. But like, you know, you can look back and really enjoy the moments that you did end up spending time with other people, even though it's not tech related, even though like I talk about tech all the time. This is the other aspect where like as a software engineer, you really should enjoy those. So that was really cool, uh, cool to talk about. Well, and I would say one more point about that is I don't think you should go out to lunch every day, right? Like I'm not one of those people who's like, you know, never eat alone. But I think that I was on the other, the far side of the spectrum and just didn't really appreciate how the small talk, the social lubricant of knowing someone outside of the, the, the bounds of your programming team would be helpful in the future. So... Exactly, yeah. And um, one of the other cool things I did mention is the uh, the different, I guess, context. So for example, when you're talking about like working in a smaller company versus a massive big company, yes, you definitely do get the more, more closer relationships. Uh, I can speak for that myself as well when uh, I work in startups. Like when you're seeing this environment of being really close to everybody and you can see the team grow much quicker, obviously, like it does grow more exponentially faster because growing from a, like 20 to like 100 is probably faster than growing from like 5,000 to like 5,100. So I guess the difference there is quite massive at the end of the day. Um, one thing I do want to bring up is that you did, I guess, use the term startup or even like the dot-com bubble era. As in like the startup concept, I feel like a lot of people think that it's a new new thing that came out in recent years. But as far as I know, startups have been a thing for, you know, decades now where you have these like small teams who are, you know, building on something that gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, one of the things I, I wanted to ask you actually is, what did it look like um, as like in terms of the culture wise? So for example, you know, when we talk about the Silicon Valley startup culture nowadays, you got these offices, like you had like hammocks hanging around and then you got like bean bags and you got like ping pong tables. That, that wasn't the case back then, was it? Uh, there was some, there was some of that. Like uh, I remember they, they, they stocked our, and remember we were a small consulting company. Right. And so I think that things would have been different at an IBM or a, a, a different kind of company, right? A Sun Microsystems. But we definitely had snacks and we did fun events on Fridays. Like we had beer pretty much every Friday uh, afternoon. We did a, I remember they did like a cheese carving contest one time where you could like, they gave you a block of cheese and you would just bring it in. They had like a contest. Um, so there was definitely some aspects of that. Foosball was huge. I remember some of my friends definitely <laughs> wow, yeah. spent a lot of time at the foosball table. Um, so I don't think, and there, there was a lot of money sloshing around. Um, less, less in the, because this company happened to be in, in the Boulder, Colorado area. So I think there was less than there was in the Silicon Valley around that time, but there was still a ton of money. And frankly, some of that money I think everyone would agree wasn't spent as well as it should have been um, in terms of, I remember we, uh, we remade, we redid our, the X, the XR company redid their, um, rebuilt their entire office and we put in like a climbing wall. Right. And it wasn't even a climbing wall that you could like get on. It was actually just like an ornamental climbing wall. And I just looked at that and I, and I thought, wow, that seems like a little bit of a waste of money. Um, but uh, as far as kind of culture, culture, there was uh, a lot, you know, uh, a lot of partying. Um, I'm trying to think whether there's anything else kind of really relevant. 
I mean, one thing that might be interesting to delve into is like actually what the um, if you're interested in historical stuff, like what it actually took to build an application because it was a totally different world. I think that's one thing that startups today, you know, you you can read about the the fact that like you can get started with AWS with a credit card and you can build an application like with kind of zero outlay, but we actually had to order servers and like rack them and we had like a network data center in our in our building and um i was not intimately involved with that but i definitely felt it in terms of that was a big part of every project was like capital up ahead you know ahead of time you had to invest in that uh in those racks of servers and also software to run them uh, you know, there was not, I guess Apache was around and there was some free software. Like I, I remember writing a lot of Perl, but there was also stuff like um, Netscape. Oh no, it was a Sun directory server, which is like an LDAP server that I remember we paid a lot of money for or BEA WebLogic. Um, so there was not this like plethora of open source um, application servers that let you, you know, to let, let you get up and running quickly to say nothing of like, you know, Netlify or other solutions right now, um, you know, AWS Lambda that lets you scale like to crazy levels and you only pay if you're successful. Like that was all upfront stuff. Oh, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that like hundred percent, some, sometimes I'll take it for granted the amazing tools that I get to use nowadays in terms of how available they are, how easy to scale. And this is really like a big shout out to all the people who are working on these developer tools that lets you like, you know, other developers, uh, sorry, like scale increase amazingly. So I think it's a really big team effort, but like just a comparison, the contrast of pointing out that back then those weren't available and that you really have to figure out even more solutions to the problems that they come up in a really quick pace. That is such a fun comparison to, to really think about uh, nowadays. And we can also, I guess, like compare the different um, kind of responsibilities of, uh, I guess like that would be your first job as a, you know, a tech job back then. Do you find like the, the similarities like, present between a modern day like early engineer role compared to like back then or is it still fairly different than uh than the two i guess eras yeah i would say that the main difference and obviously i don't i i am not someone a year out of a year in their career right now right but i've definitely worked with them and i've talked to them uh i would say the bigger difference now well there's two differences um, I would say one is there's just a lot more you're expected to know how to do. Uh, that's part of all those tools being built for us, right? Um, but I think that the, the the level of abstractions and the level of things that you're expected to know how to do are higher now for a new engineer than they would be for a um, for me, right? I, I, there's no way I would be expected to deploy anything to production, um, you know, for a while, uh, whereas now the tooling is such that you can really expect a junior engineer to deploy some into production pretty early uh, on the job. Um, the second thing is just the sheer amount of resources, right? 20 years ago, this is before YouTube. This is before Stack Overflow. This is uh, before blogs, really. Like, so there was Usenet and there was, you know, man pages and there were books and lots of books, right? Like people paid for books all the time back then. Uh, and, you know, Google wasn't even around really, right? Like Google had just started. Um, I remember using Alta Vista at my first job uh, for some searches, which if you don't know, <laughs> was a search engine before Google. Um, and it was all right, but it was no Google. 
Um, so I think that those kind of go hand in hand, right? There's a ton more resources that you can now take advantage of as a new developer. And then on the other hand, you have to take advantage of them because you are expected to do, be able to do more things. Yeah, I mean, that, that's all great, like, knowledges from, like, if you want to compare from back then, because uh, obviously I do remember at first day as a, like, as a early tech software engineer kind of guy, and I feel like I'll be able to do this comparison, you know, a couple of years down the line when I see more and more people uh, in a different environment with a different responsibility. So that's really cool. Um, actually, like, if we keep on moving on this, like, crazy good story that you've got so far, because I feel like you've definitely worn so many different hats in terms of being, like, you know, a director of engineering, CTO, and then, like, maybe a bit of developer advocate. After starting this whole, like, kind of process of becoming, going onto this path of software engineering, so you would start off as quite a green, you know, junior engineer. From that point, you did end up becoming, you know, more mature and more like a senior software developer, I guess. Was it still at Exor or was it at somewhere else that you kind of discovered this new role and responsibility? Sure. So I uh, was at Exor for a couple of years, and I think I might have graduated from developer one to developer two or something like that. I then was a contractor for a number of years. And that was a great experience in terms of like uh, the other pieces that surround software development, right? Uh, a friend of mine always says that there's three pieces to any job as a contractor. You have, you have to find the work, you have to do the work, and you have to get paid for the work. And when you're an employee, you just really focus on that second step, right? Doing the work. As a contractor, I was responsible for kind of all those other pieces, which really gave me a much better appreciation for all the pieces of a company that support a software developer in a consulting uh, situation. Um, I eventually, one of my contract, uh, one of my clients captured me, uh, not captured me, they hired me, and <laughs> uh, they were, a, uh, it was a great, it was actually someone I knew from XOR who had started a separate company. And that was a great run. I was there for four, basically three years as a contractor and like four years as an employee. And that was my first uh, director of engineering um, position where I got to actually hire people and, um, you know, work with budgets and work with roadmaps. I uh, really enjoyed that. And that was one, uh, it was for real estate brokerage. And I actually really kind of drove deep, dove deep into that domain. So I kind of really understand all the players of the real estate world. Um, and that's actually one thing that I would recommend to anybody thinking about software development is being a software developer is a superpower, but like being a software developer who knows a business domain, whether that's real estate, finance, um, healthcare, um, you know, uh, manufacturing, construction, whatever the industry is, if you know both of those well, you're going to be really well set up because you can be that person who speaks to both sides of the business, right? If you're, if you know construction really well, you can go work for a construction software company uh, and you'll be able to speak to the software engineers and the people who are like with the problems that the software is trying to solve. That's really cool, actually, because even the term director of engineering, I've, like, I, from my point of view, I always find that an aggressive and intimidating term just because it's such an unknown because... It's tough to put a definition to, I guess, what a director of engineering is. And I'm actually so glad I'm just talking to you about this to begin with. Um, one of the uh, previous, I guess, distinction that uh, I've definitely heard before is that there's different paths when you go into software engineering. Um, I don't know if it's a new thing or not, but when people talk about these software engineering ladders at the end of the day, 
uh, they would always like compare the two between uh, sorry the two different paths where you got one of the paths being an IC which is an individual contributor versus an engineering manager path. Uh, I guess the biggest difference between the two is that the IC will be much closer to the code where you're an individual contributing directly to code and really maintaining the problems and you know as you scale up you end up becoming you know like a architect or like a principal engineer and then that's kind of like the path. And then from my perspective, I guess, from the other end is that you have the engineering path is I feel like that's where the director of engineering lives. Um, and I think like from, from my, my question, basically, in terms of like, is that, is that accurate? Is that what, what you see nowadays? Or when back then you were, uh, you were a director of engineering, sorry, was it kind of like a good description of what I just said about the two different paths or? Yeah, I think that's a really, really interesting question because I think that you got to take a step back and think about the context, right? Um, the big companies can't afford to have two paths, right? Xor actually had two paths. They had the IC path where you end up like as a staff engineer, although they probably called it principal, I think is probably what they called it. And then they had the engineering management path. But a lot of the companies I've worked for have been way too small for that. And so uh, the, the real estate company that I worked for was too small for that. And so they made director of engineering um, as, you know, basically a, a title. I was like team lead because there was this really small team. And I will always say, and I'll say this about the CTO role I've had too, you know, you can't, just because someone's director of engineering at one place doesn't mean that they're going to have the skills to be successful as director of engineering at something else, someplace else. And at a small company, you know, you may be the director of engineering, but if you only have three or four people on your team, you don't have enough work to do being a people manager to occupy your time. You're probably going to be in the code as well, maybe wearing your architect hat sometimes. So, um, but I, I think that to your point, um, once you get to a certain size of the company, you know, 100 people, 200 people, you're going to want to start to break those out and think about those. Um, and that that's a much more real thing now than it, than it used to. But I think most small companies, if you want to move up, you're going to be doing both kinds of, of work, both the kind of the kind of staff engineer, you know, um, in the code, architecting, talking to the business, and then the engineering manager, um, you know, hiring people, one-to-ones, um, all the, all that stuff. And I've actually done that role twice. And it's, uh, it's kind of stressful to be in that role in a, in a small company because it is kind of two different types of work. So I think it makes sense in a big company where you have the resources, you split them apart. Yeah. I mean, like even putting that into context, like that is super helpful just because as you were saying, the number of people in total does definitely matter at the end. Mm -hmm. And the other bit that when you mentioning, it's not really like a black and white thing, right? It's not because you're a director of engineering. I don't ever touch any of the actual implementation of any of the code. It's kind of like this blend where depending, you know, as being flexible in terms of role and responsibilities, you do end up touching, you know, on both sides. So I think that's kind of true for even people nowadays, whether it's not even being about a director of engineering, it's just about working in tech is that you do end up doing responsibilities of something that is not directly related to your role slash title slash whatever you want to officially call it. But this is, I think at the end of the day, all good experience no matter what, uh, when you do do it and when you do remember doing them and then in the future coming across a similar problem then this world of being able to wear many different hats uh, is definitely useful down the line at the other day so that is really cool one thing i do want to bring up actually is uh, you did mention this project of being a cto slash co-founder at the end well what was that about actually i, I thought that was uh, really really cool yeah thanks um so 
I uh, was had left the real estate brokerage and I contracted for a while and I worked for some interesting companies. I worked for Oracle for a while and uh, a startup in, in the Boulder area that was doing a cool thing around stopping phone, uh, stopping text messages while the phone was in motion in a car. But um, I ended up running across a startup that was really nascent and they were looking for a technical co-founder uh, and I joined them basically kind of winging a prayer kind of thing. They'd raised no money. I just really believed in the concept and it was, uh, again, speaking of domain, it was, and speaking, you know, kind of tying it back to permaculture and like, um, sustainable agriculture. It was a food startup, food tech startup. And the idea was to be Airbnb for commercial kitchen space. And, you know, did that. And, uh, you know, again, CTO of a two person startup is vastly, vastly different than CTO of a 50 person or 500 person company. So I was, in some ways I was a founding engineer. I built everything, uh, basically, you know, not from scratch cause I kind of pulled pieces and, uh, from here and there. And, uh, we ended up, you know, succeeding, uh, as far as, you know, startups go. And, uh, after a couple of years, I kind of did an assessment and realized that it, the, the, the situation was not the right one for me at that time. And so I departed, but I, they're still going strong. It's called the food corridor and they're doing great. And I'm, you know, get, I, I'm still in touch with my co-founder and, uh, you know, hear how things are going and they're, they're still, they survived the pandemic, um, and are, are doing good. So, uh, that, that, experience caught me a couple things one it's like how hard it is to go from zero to one um how much it's not just financial runway you need for a startup to be successful i think it's also emotional runway like you really need to like be in it for the long haul and i don't know if there's any way to know whether you're in it for the long haul without trying it but it just is such a grind and then the third thing i learned is i just don't know how you do that without a co-founder I just really don't know because there were moments that were just super hard, disturbing. I'd made a mistake. Um, things were like, everything seemed like it was on fire and have Ashley, my co-founder there to, I could just bounce ideas off of was, was super, super helpful. So uh, great experience. Um, I don't know if I have another one of those in me, like to do that kind of from zero to, to um, saleable product, but uh, really enjoy the experience. Yeah, I think even having that part of your history is like definitely like a like a great asset to have. Because I mean, speaking for all the people out there nowadays who are who have this entrepreneurial mindset that just really want to jump into it, like it does a, it's as I was gonna say, like it's a relatable feeling, right? A, a relatable like challenge that people do want to take on. Um, I think it was actually quite uh funny slash brave i guess to see somebody did you have like second thoughts at that point in terms of like when you're jumping into a project kind of like in the unknown because i know a lot of founders slash people who are starting a project that they're not uh when you're saying from zero to one like it's always scary was there ever like a second doubt kind of thing like in terms of this blind couragelessness is that what you would describe it back then you know i think we did some things right with that company and one of the things we did right is my co-founder had a lot of domain expertise and had lined up like she'd done kind of her own uh, kind of super manual prototype. And we actually had people willing to like 
to buy it, right? And so what we did is I joined in kind of March and then I was wrapping up my current contract. And then in April, I worked every day, the month of April, <laughs> building out, building it out. We did a beta test in May with like 10 kitchens that were willing to like give us feedback. And then June, I think I, I have a piece of paper around here somewhere, June 2nd or 3rd, we actually made our first dollar. And so in three months, we went from PowerPoint to revenue. Uh, and, you know, at that point, I was sure that it was going to be good for a while, right? That I was going to learn a ton, that the, the customers were great, um, that we had something they wanted. Like when you go through a beta test and people, and you're embarrassed by what you're showing people, but people are very thankful and, and, and say to you like, wow, this is, this is so much better than what we're doing right now you know that you've got something going on. So I think that's definitely encouraging for anybody hearing this and wants to like kind of live the same experience, know that people have gone through that step. And uh, it's definitely something that really grows you as a person at the end. So that is absolutely amazing. Um, one of the things that uh, I didn't mention earlier is about being a developer advocate slash working developer relation. Um, I'm obviously fascinated by how that works at the end of the day, just because this is, I guess a term that you don't really notice until somebody tells you. What I mean by that is that the whole point, I guess, of your developer experience as somebody working in a whatever team or a company is that you want to make the best developer experience for, you know, the, the engineers at the end of the day. So is that an accurate way of describing what you do nowadays? Or if not, what is a developer advocate? And uh, how does it look like, uh, I guess, for your day-to-day -day now? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So... Um... You know, obviously, again, this is one where context matters a lot. And so I've been, I've only, like I said, I moved in this role relatively recently. Uh, previous to FusionAuth, I worked at a company that um, had a couple of developer advocates and had raised a bunch of money from some VCs. And so that was a totally different kind of experience than where I'm at now. But the, the simplest distillation of it, and this is something that a coworker of mine said once, is that... Um, developer relations folks represent the community to the company and the company to the community. And so they're kind of this bridge. And the reason why it's even like its own separate type of role nowadays is that people realize how important developer communities are. And I can say that's true for FusionAuth because, you know, we get a ton of um, our business, a ton of our customer feedback, a ton of bug finding, a ton of uh, um, just feedback in general comes from developers who are using our tool. And so taking that feedback and presenting it in such a way that the company can actually act on it is one of the things that I try to do. Um, obviously many means of taking customer feedback, but that's one of the things I try to do. And the other thing I try to do is, is outreach to the community and that could be things like interviewing them for blog post stories or setting up case studies or even just retweeting or engaging with them when they're talking on Twitter. Uh, so that's kind of the, the big picture thing of what I do, you know, nuts and bolts. Um, since we're kind of a smallish company, um, you know, I do everything from customer support. Like I look at the forum and make sure that like questions are answered in a somewhat reasonable period of time. I work on documentation. I work on, you know, speaking and publicity. And, and um, you know, I, I 
hit up meetups to try to do talks at meetups. I've presented at a conference. Um, I do video recordings. So again, kind of back to the early part of the conversation, like that's one of the things I love about this job is that every day is different, right? Like today I uh, spent time on, um, I'm working on porting our client libraries to OpenAPI to see whether that's a good fit. Right, uh, right now we have a, kind of our own custom client libraries or custom SDKs, and I'm going to try to see whether OpenAPI, which is a standard for specifying um, an API, a REST API, and you can generate client libraries off of that specification. So I'm playing around with that to see whether that's a fit for our, our use case. And then I also spent time um, talking to a company about a possible sales channel and I spent time reviewing a document that I'm hoping to get published in the next uh, week and then I spent time talking to one of the engineers who wrote a blog post and he wanted to talk about um, somebody had commented and he wanted to talk about like how to respond to that comment so it's just a super varied job as opposed to you know when you're a software engineer you're writing code or you're talking to people about like what kind of code you should write and that's fun too don't get me wrong, but I just, I really enjoy the broad swath of activities. Yeah, I think that is absolutely sick just because like even nowadays when we hear about a lot of like very beloved tools and services that are avail available to people, whenever they you do, you do hear about them in conversations, some topics that people do point out is that if a tool has really good, I guess, like service and resources and it's quite active the community is lively that's something that attracts even more people so i think like having the the resources spent on that and really just growing as you were mentioning like a community behind uh whether it's your product or somebody else's product uh or whether these open source projects on github that has loads of like people involved in commits and everything i think that's something that is definitely valuable for any kind of project mm -hmm. whether um I guess whether you're directly involved into it or not at the end of the day. So I think like just thinking about it from that perspective of that being one of the responsibilities of a developer advocate, I think that really sums up, you know, the, the goal, the purpose of it, which I think it's absolutely cool. Um, and one of the cool thing is that um, this, this kind of mindset of like giving back and teaching and building these resources that didn't just start recently. Like, I feel like, have you done that? Like just throughout your whole career as you go, what I meant by that was that have you previously done like, you know, teaching classes or like just hosting kind of like seminars to like get people more, uh, I guess, knowledgeable or informed about some kind of technologies or whatever tech topic that you want to talk about. Sure, sure. I will say before we kind of depart the uh, DevRel thing that if anyone's interested in de developer relations, I think there's a great book called The Developers Are the New Kingmakers uh, by Stephen O'Grady. And it's old now. I think it's like five or six years old, but there are PDFs floating around there on the internet because New Relic offered New Relic paid the publisher to like make them available, and it just really is a good uh, business-focused book on why it makes sense to target developers with your marketing. So if you're interested in DevRel, um, I think that would be an informative book. But um, about giving back, yeah, I mean, I I think that um, you know I have certainly as I outlined in my history, I've certainly benefited from many people helping me, right? Whether that was that family friend who gave me an entrance into making copies of those floppy disks or the consulting company who took that referral from a family friend and, uh, you know, was willing, were willing to give me an internship. 
and I and I strongly feel that we should continue to do so. And so some of the ways I've done that include, you know, speaking at meetups, um, which is a scary thing to do, but a great thing to do. And um, I'll tell you as a meetup organizer, which I've been for the last couple of years, that I don't know a single meetup organizer who wouldn't be interested in hearing from somebody who wants to speak about a topic as long as it's not pitching their business, right? Because developers are cynical about that kind of thing. But if you want to talk about anything else, uh, people, uh, meetup organizers are always hungry for, for people to, to do talks. So that's a great way to give back to the community. And it really makes you learn too, right? And I think that's the flip side of this giving first uh, is that you actually end up benefiting too, even though you feel like you're giving your time. And trust me, I've done talks and I know how much time and effort it is to do a talk and how scary it can be to get up there in front of that, no matter how friendly the meetup is, uh, to get up in front of that group and give the talk. But you will benefit from that. Um, another thing I've done is I've, um, in relation to Letters to New Developer, I've, I've given some talks to some boot camps uh, so that's really, again, just about like talking to people. I mean, similar to what we're doing right now, right? I'm hoping that people will listen to this podcast and find some nugget of helpfulness and you can never tell what that nugget is going to be because everything is kind of context dependent, but you can at least say, Hey, here's the mistakes I've made. Here's the, the, the dumb stuff I've done. Here's what I wish I'd known, or here's something that you can do to kind of level up quicker. And uh, so, yeah, I've really enjoyed talking to the various um, boot camps around. Mostly it's been around the Colorado area, but um, there's so many people who are moving into software and are excited about that possible career path. And it's just fun to be able to give them a, a little bit of a hand up. Um, and the final thing I would say is that I think being a new developer right now is really in some ways a lot harder because of some of the things we talked about having to know more. And also I think that the fact is that the bootcamp uh, model is really good because it opens up the world of software element for a wider swath of people than the traditional four-year CS degree. It also means that there's just a lot more uh, supply of kind of new talent. And so anyway, I can help those, those people, whether that's kind of, you know, a little bit of mentoring or talking to them or even just connecting to them, or even just, honestly, I think you can help new developers just by being honest about the struggles you go through as a senior developer. Right. Um, I've, I've seen those tweets where senior developers say, I've been a developer for 20 years and I had to Google this function in JavaScript, you know, just today. I think uh, that helps break down the wall that some new developers perceive between them and, and senior developers. And there's definitely a, a gap in experience, but everyone makes mistakes and everybody does dumb stuff and Google's dumb stuff. So... Yeah, just it's quite funny because in this context of today, right now, Google has been down for the past couple of days. So we're just going to dig it a little bit at that. But I definitely want to wholly echo in terms of like, um, I just want to point out the fact that as you work in the, I guess, tech industry, like, yes, your main role will be software engineering. But everything that you've mentioned so far about giving back and, you know, even talking at these events and really just encouraging the next, I guess, generation or even just your peers of doing even more cool stuff. This is something I could do in parallel on top of your main responsibility, right? This is not like 
completely focused thing. It's something that you could enjoy doing yourself engineering, but also at the same time, it's definitely not, I guess, that much of an effort personally for me. If I'm doing any of these kind of recordings, for example, like sharing these kind of resources, of course, like I'm going to say the glorified way of putting this is that yes, you're sharing resources to everybody. But at the end of the day, I personally enjoy this just because I learned so much out of all of this. Like in terms of like just the selfish, sorry, the selfishness of this is that I get to learn so many cool things. And the byproduct is that we really get to talk about cool topics and somebody might find, as you say, some, some cool nuggets into this. So uh, that's kind of exposing the reason why I do this at the end of the day. Um, I also do want to bring up the... Um, Sorry, the bit where you said about the letters to a new, uh, sorry, letters to a new developer. Um, that's a project that uh, I actually came across it uh, just, you know, on the law, on the organic way. And that's really what really driven my interest and my curiosity into all this. So uh, if we talk about that, actually, that's actually a collection of, I guess, letters to a new developer. And it's kind of compiled into a book where, I mean, from cover to cover, there's actually so many useful information into it. So I definitely want to, you know, pick a brain about that a little bit. So... Yeah, just just like a brief thing to, to even like introduce people to it, like letters of uh, to a new developer. When did it come out? What's it about? Sure. Well, actually, before before we head on to that, I just want to like emphasize. I think you you made a really insightful comment, which is you don't need to. You can still do software development and these other things, right? And I think that's important to realize. I will say that I think that. Um, you'd be surprised at the opportunities that open up. And I, I imagine this is true for you and your podcast, the opportunities that open up uh, when you raise your head up from the keyboard and and do these other things and give these other bits of opportunity or not, I'm sorry, not give bits of opportunity, um, give back. Uh, you may be surprised at the good things that happen to you. So, and and I will also say the more senior you get, the more you should be doing that within your team environment. And that actually becomes part of your job, right? To help uh, level people up. Like um, there's a great, I, I was reading, uh, what was I reading? I was reading something today about um, new developers. I'll see what I can remember uh, what the what the book was, but it was basically saying that junior developers succeed kind of on their own merits and senior developers succeed on the merits of their team. And so really you need to like, be helping your team succeed. If you're just a senior developer or a, a staff engineer who's like super focused on, you know, what you can do, there may be roles opening for you for that, but there's a much wider group of roles open if you're like helping level up everybody else and helping them be more effective. Yeah, that's actually really sick, uh, especially putting it in that perspective. Because like, obviously, um, currently I could speak for myself, I guess, that like, it seems somewhat blind is that if you don't do it, you don't really notice it, right? So I think it's like, I, I completely agree of just like taking that extra step of opening your vision. Like, I'm so glad you just double emphasize on that. So appreciate that so much. Um, but yeah, like as, uh, as we were talking about the uh, letters to a new developer. Yeah, tell us more about that in terms of like, when did it come out, the context behind the, the reason behind that actually. Sure, sure. So I actually, um, it, it, the book came out on August 16th, I believe, uh, 2020. And I started it in September of 2018 uh, as a, just a series of blog posts. And I had previously written a book, a technical ebook about a, a, a phone, a mobile phone technology called Cordova and had acquired a deep respect for how much effort it takes to 
to write a book, even if it's a 40-page technical ebook. And I made some money from that. But as soon as we stopped, as soon as I finished that book, I actually ended up um, not using the technology anymore. We decided not to do it at work, and I wasn't passionate enough about the technology to uh, continue updating that book outside of work. And so a couple of years had passed, and I was thinking about writing another book, and I really wanted to, th- to pick a topic that was going to be uh, not that was going to be evergreen, that was not going to get old in a certain period of time. And I thought about, you know, I looked at some of the technology I was using. I was interested in that. But I also thought that books that are about how you can be a better person or better software engineer never go out of style if you can write a good one. And so I ended up brainstorming some ideas. And anybody who's thinking about writing a book, I highly suggest doing it this way. Uh, based on my two books that I've written um, is see if you can write 10 blog posts about it because blog posts are easy. They're low effort. And if you can't muster 10 blog posts about, uh, and this is a nonfiction book. I don't know about writing a fiction book. That's a whole different, whole different ball game, but a nonfiction book, if you can't write 10 blog posts about it, then you are probably not interested enough to get through writing a book. And the nice thing is that you can continue to do stuff on the blog, even if you aren't writing everything on the blog, like like I most of Letters to New Developer, the book is sourced from the blog, although it's extensively revised and there's new content as well in the book. Um, but you can continue to use that as a marketing channel, which I think is really important to get feedback from your users, uh, from your potential readers. Like, is this something that you're that they're interested in? Because you need to have both those levels of interest kind of sync up, right? You need to be really interested in a topic and you need to have other people interested in a topic for it to be worthwhile to make that investment. Yeah, I mean, that's great, actually. Um, one thing I do really like when you mentioned that is that you didn't you didn't spit out a book from one day to another, right? This is a slowly step-by-step gradual process where, as you were saying, like you start with a couple of blogs and then you kind of get into the rhythm. Then like, as you kind of like get into this mode and you kind of look back a bit and be like, you realize that, hey, look, this, this, compilation is is a book at the end of the day right it's like really useful resources that you've been doing you know consistently and basically repackaging it uh obviously you're adding you're saying that there's even better content on that this is kind of like it's it's an evolution as you would call it or so as i would say so (laughs) just because like it you know it kind of grows from i guess nothing this interest and then next thing you know it's a great resource that is available to you know anybody who is curious about that so that's actually really cool i I didn't even know that i was i was i thought it was going to be a book maybe, but I didn't know, right? I didn't set out to it. And I actually uh, encountered a publisher at a conference in mid-2019 and we chatted about it. And then it sat, like she sent me the, the book proposal form and that basically sat untouched for about six months. And then finally I was like, hmm, this is still something I'm interested in because I continued to do the blog during that time period. I just wasn't sure I wanted to commit to a book. And then I, uh, you know, after six months had passed, and it was still kind of a bee in my bonnet. I decided that I did want to do that. So uh, I think anybody who's thinking about writing a book, you know, um, I'm sure there are people out there who uh, write it really kind of in one go. But for me, the evolutionary process, which I love that term, was just so much better because it does kind of 
make sure that you can gauge uh, and, and that you have the, the interest in it yourself and then also from the community for the long haul. Oh yeah, that definitely satisfied my, I guess, like geekiness about probably trying to figure out the operations behind a project. Like this is not even about the actual content of letters to a new developer. This is just me satisfying the need of how does a book even get published to begin with? Or at what point is a book or like a compilation of articles be considered as a published book? So I think like you just even bringing that up is a good, uh, good, I guess, demystifying of, I guess, this form that you just basically have to sign and figure out. Obviously, there's a lot more complexity to it. But I guess like in terms of if you, if you just geek out a bit on the logistics of writing a book is, um, do you always need a publisher, I guess, to have an official published book? Or is there any other means for an, sorry, an individual right now that has a couple of different pieces out there to actually be considered, you know, having a public book that is published out there? Sorry. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and we live in a golden age for that, right? Uh, you have a lot of options as an author nowadays. Um, so I have done that self-published book that I mentioned, um, or I'm sorry, the Cordova book was actually self-published, uh, that 40-page ebook. Um, there's a great website out there called LeanPub, which basically lets you uh, build a book in the open, like write a book in the open. Um, there are other ones out there. That's just one I happen to be familiar with. Uh, you can self-publish and get a like a paperback book. Um, I've actually, I, I help my wife do that. And then you can go through a traditional publisher. And I think, you know, the, the value that a traditional publisher brings is a certain level of quality assurance, a certain level of, um, a certain imprimatur of like a stamp of quality, uh, definitely um, some editorial feedback, uh, and then, um, kind of knowing they, they know how to get stuff into distributors or that matters kind of less than it used to, right. With, with Amazon and the internet and what they do in exchange for that is they take a large, very large chunk of your money and they, um, of, e of each book sale. Um, and so, you know, if you are self-publishing again, well, actually this is really, I've never actually thought of this way before. I told you that when I was a contractor, you had to worry about finding the work, doing the work, and selling the work. And when you're self-published, you have to do the same thing, right? You have to worry about finding the audience, building the book to, to, to sell to your audience, and then selling it to your audience. Although there are tools out there like Gumroad and, and LeanPub that will help you with that. Um, whereas when you're a published author, when you're going through a publisher, sorry, everyone's a published author, um, if they make a book. Um, but when you're going through a publisher, a traditional publisher, then you're just focused on doing the work, right? And the publisher takes care of finding the audience to some extent and selling the book to the audience to some extent. Again, you can still help that um, by going on podcasts and by promoting your book in, in other ways. But in theory, they take care of some of that, that work for sure. And so that's the trade-off you make. You just have less control over your, your product. Like I see people who have self-published books, you know, run Black Friday sales and sell things for 20, you know, 75% uh, off. And that is just not something that I have the control over to do, right? I mean, my book, the publisher set the price of my book and I can ask for discount codes, but um, I don't, you know, I don't own the pricing, I guess would be one way to put it, among other things that I don't own. I think that's super insightful at the end of the day. Um, I mean, after you just describing, I guess, the whole operations behind it, I think 
it could easily go onto anybody's to-do list at this point. I'll probably bang it online and like, it's definitely going to be in the back of my mind whenever that happens. So self-publish or are you going to go through a publisher? Oh boy. I mean, <laughs> if I can even write one article, I'll let you know the answer to that one after. <laughs> Fair. Um, what was, uh, what was actually even cool is that uh, as we were talking about these, um, I guess like the operations behind letters uh, to a new developer, like obviously I want to dive into the actual content to it because even just like, skimming through uh, skimming through the topics that we even talk about like in terms of like your first month as a developer and like all the questions that you should be asking and all the tools that is available available to you sorry and just even having the mindset of thinking about the business impact that you could contribute to your company and then even just picturing your whole career at the end this mm. book really covers all of it and which is why I like in terms of you know sharing the the knowledge this is a great time to you know dive into a couple of those points so one of the first thing obviously that uh, a lot of people meet when they kind of take on this path of engineering at the end of the day is that we talk about your first month. What, what does that mean at the end for somebody's first month? Like, you know, as a, as an engineer, I guess. Sure. So, I mean, I will say that, like, I think that there's the first month of any job is really important. Um, you know, when you switch, when you switch positions, but I think especially when it's your first job in, in the career, it really sets a certain thing, right? It sets your habits. It sets your reputation to some extent. And so I think it's really good to think about how you can succeed, right? And set yourself up for success as, as best you can. Uh, one thing I will say is Letters to New Developer doesn't talk a lot about finding a job, right? It's really more about you found a job or you're interested in software development and you want to know what that's going to be like or how you can be successful in the job. Um, there are a lot of other great books about interviewing and, and whatnot. Um, so yeah, so I, I think that one of the key things that I did in my first job, and I think it's good for anybody else, is to over-index, is, is how I phrase it, on that, that first month, which basically means do a little bit more than you're expected to, do a little bit more than you might want to. Um, you know, you're probably exhausted from trying to figure everything out, right? Having a bunch of new jargon, new terms, new teammates, you know, new processes all thrown at you. But if you can kind of carve out some time to work a little bit harder, and I realize that not everybody has a luxury, right? Like some people have to work a couple jobs or some people have to come home from um, a job and take care of, uh, you know, family members or whatnot. But if you can carve out time to do, go a little bit further, people are going to remember that and, and it's going to help you kind of long-term because, you know, there's that saying that I hate, which is, you know, first impressions matter, but they do. And so I think if you can take steps to make the best first impression you can over that, you know, month, because again, you know, that first, I, I usually, when I, when I onboard an, a new developer in any kind of um, company of any size, you know, I expect that first week to be garbage, right? It's great if it's not garbage, but there's just so much coming at people that it's not a surprise to me at all if it's garbage. Sorry, garbage is a strong term. It's just you're getting spun up. And so you're not going to be a new developer is not going to be super effective. Um, so but if you can show that you are um, above and beyond going above and beyond for that first month, that's going to pay dividends down the line. That's so funny, but you said the first month, month is garbage, sorry. Just because um, even 
I was gonna say relatable, just because like very recently I was also onboarding a couple of new people to our team, and one thing I do keep on repeating is they get well, you get bombarded with so much information. This then yeah, it might as well be garbage at the end. But I think what's important during that I guess phase is that a lot of these like terms that you'll throw out when you onboard somebody is that they'll stick in the back of their mind, so that this kind of connection might come back and they'll be able to you know recompute this like oh they mentioned this at this point and then it'll go back onto that so i think it was just really funny when like it really does sound the first week or even the first month that a lot of jobs is wasted but i think like even just having the resources and this plan of onboarding people is definitely good for the long run because as i was mentioning back of the mind if you've heard it once it's probably going to come back at the end of the day so i mean to, to, to your point like when you are onboarding there's there's two things right like one is that you don't have an idea what you don't know and so you should be writing down or taking notes on every piece of jargon that you hear even if you don't say hey what does that mean now you can do research on it later or it can circle around so i'm a big fan of taking notes the other thing that you you bring when you're a new person and especially a new developer is you can ask why and if you don't do it in a you shouldn't do it in a combative way but you can do it in a Oh, that's really interesting. You know, could you explain more about that to me? Way, and I think that that beginner mind, that beginner mind, uh, has a way of exposing issues that people who've been living with those issues uh, don't see, right? Or how I put this, um, it has a way of exposing issues that people who've been living with those issues have learned to ignore. And so you can say. Uh, uh, why does it take 10 steps to deploy this particular piece of software? And the person who's been living with that and has like built up like scar tissue around that deploy process can say, oh, oh yeah, that actually doesn't make a lot of sense. Maybe there is a way to make that a little simpler. Or, you know, and I think that beginner's mindset is a, another great thing that new developers bring to uh, their new jobs. And, and again, I want to make sure you don't want to be combative and you always want to assume there's good reason for everything, but asking questions with a honest, truthful curiosity can really expose things that may need to be simplified or, or may have made sense at the time that they were implemented, but don't make sense now. Yes. I'll hundred percent agree with that. Um, funny enough, I'll just point this out as that, uh, me personally for years, uh, whenever I do talk to new people, even any other kind of, uh, any kind of younger, I guess, green engineer out there is that, there is no dumb question. It's funny because um, I've said this for years. And when I was reading the book, actually, that is definitely inside the book. <laughs> um, so it seems like, you know, people have been saying that for, for you know, the past past years, whatever, how long it is. Yeah, I, I don't know where I first heard it, but uh, I definitely have taken it to, to heart that if you have a question, chances are, and you're a group of 10 people, uh, chances are somebody else has that same question and I actually remember back at XOR my first job uh, they had some conference calls and I was kind of fearless because I didn't have a lot of obligations that time and if they'd laid me off I would have been actually kind of thrilled in some ways right uh, I would have gotten a severance package and and um, been uh, and you know fluent in fancy future a little while so I actually specialized in asking hard questions and they actually people got to the point where they were expecting me to ask the hard questions and this was you know during 2000 2001 when business wasn't going great and yet the ceo was still kind of trying to like paint a little bit of a happy face and i would ask questions you know in front of a couple hundred people that 
I knew everybody else wanted to know the answer to. I was just the only one that was dumb or fearless enough to ask those questions. But um, I think if you aren't willing, like, like, well, I, I would push back a little bit, Perry. I think, you know, there's no such thing as a dumb question, but I think that you as a new developer bear some responsibility for trying to find the answer yourself, right? Um, Google is amazing. Stack Overflow is amazing. Um, your current code base is probably amazing. It's an amazing resource. So I think there's no dumb questions, but I will say that if you ask the same question over and over again and you don't seem to learn the answer, then um, I worry about your ability to kind of learn things um, that, you, that you're going to need to do for the rest of your software engineering career, right? So uh, again, no dumb questions. Just when you take the time to ask someone a question, make sure that you respect their time that they give you to answer it by like, trying to incorporate that lesson in that, that, that um, knowledge into your uh, repertoire of, of understanding. Yeah, that's, that's totally awesome. Actually. Um, this is great. Actually, with all these like different tips for uh, any, I guess, new developer coming in. One thing I do want to squeeze in there, like just a easy tip for all the new developers in the first month is if we talk about hardware, ask for the best hardware you could get. Cause I do know as <laughs> I, you'll probably agree or disagree with me on this, but like, as you work somewhere, it's so hard to ask for an upgrade on the hardware. So when we talk about the first month as a new developer, please, please, please ask for the best software you could get. Uh, sorry, hardware you could get. Yeah. I mean, uh, just, this is actually, and this kind of ties into another, one of the letters is that businesses, uh, happily spend money to make money. And so when you are buying a piece of uh, a computer on your own, right, that you're going to use for making podcasts or playing video games or, or whatever you want to do, you know, you are coming at things with a different set of motivations than a business person is when they are buying you a computer for your work at their company. And I think that, uh, that took me a while to kind of understand that, that businesses, because I'm pretty cheap. Uh, my wife will tell you that. And businesses, smart, well-run businesses will spend money to make money. And you as a developer, even if you are only making, you know, let's say $50,000 a year, which is really, you know, kind of low on the developer scale in the U.S. right now, um, depends on where you are, which metro area you're in and whatnot. Um, obviously, if you're in different countries, which I know you are very, like, you know, different salaries matter, but like, you know, let's just say it's a certain X thousand dollars a year, like you cost a lot more than that because of the benefits, because the opportunity costs, because of other things that are happening. And so if they can buy you hardware that increases your productivity by 10%, that is going to pay for itself very quickly in terms of your, um, uh, in terms of the ability for you to do work. So that's kind of a, a bigger take on ask for great hardware. I think that um, businesses, again, it just took me a long time to learn that businesses don't think about money the same way that individuals do, or business owners don't. That's awesome. <laughs> just because I love hearing people actually clarify and mentioning that. So that's actually really, really cool. 
And um, yeah, like even just like the different topics that people do talk about as new developers as well, actually. One of the common one that I do hear about, um, I don't know if you talk about it daily, but I feel like I talk about this daily, is do programming languages matter? I feel like when we talk to new developers, like some of them are kind of hard to be like, I need to be using this or I need to be doing that. I think just as a, you know, fun topic of conversation, what would be your take on that for uh, the new developers like getting into the whole tech industry? Yeah, I think that's a, a good question. Um, so I would say that uh, I think you need to... I think it, it, it will behoove you to understand one language really well and to learn another language to the point where you can be kind of effective in it uh, because you'll be able to kind of map between those languages and learn different concepts that are either kind of unique to a language or common between them. Um, and, you know, once you go from one to two, it's going to be easy to go from two to three to four to five. Uh, I will say that once you get to a certain point, you realize that there's kind of two paths. We talked earlier about the IC versus the engineering manager path. There's also like the specialist versus the generalist path. And I think those are two different ways to be a software developer. Um, a specialist, you know, focuses in one area or conceivably one language and really gets deep into that, that, er that area, that technology and can understand, you know, huge amounts of, um, information about that particular thing and is is very valuable if someone has a need for that but a generalist on the other hand is really good at learning and can pick up new concepts and be effective in a variety of different areas and um also can um skip speed quickly on things right and they map between different domains or different languages um, you know, every language has an ORM, right? An object relational mapper for taking, well, maybe not every language, but most languages do. And there are similar concepts for each ORM. And so if you learn one, you can apply that to others. So I think different companies want different kinds of things, right? If you're going to work at Google or Facebook, you're probably, they're probably going to want a specialist, someone who's kind of has deep knowledge of something, if you're going to go work at smaller companies, which is where I spent the bulk of my career, generalists are much more welcome. And so uh, I would just say that um, do programming languages matter? I think that answer to that question really does depend on whether you're going to be a specialist or a generalist. No, I mean, the way you put the, the context and everything, like I, I definitely do agree with it in terms of from what I've seen from the from the years I've been a software engineer and from even what I've been doing personally I do agree that the um, being efficient at one language is definitely useful just because of you're able to output stuff out of it but you shouldn't I guess limit yourself to it because concepts are shared across languages as well uh, whether it be design patterns or the way you implement some kind of architecture uh, those a lot of those concepts are language agnostic at the end of the day so uh, I do think that having a core language really does help you for the efficiency in that aspect. Uh, but in the picture, uh, bigger picture, sorry, obviously being able to translate these understanding to different, um, I guess, languages, is also really useful. And then when you throw in the factor, as you mentioned, the context, like this whole package kind of, I guess, gives an answer at the end of if a programming language matter or not, which I agree kind of does. <laughs> um, Again, like I just want to be very sensitive to people who are just starting out, like, 
to some extent, there is just this, this the first hurdle to getting a programming language job, a, a software developer job, is the highest one, it feels like to me. At least from what I've seen, again, speaking back to the kind of the boot camps and, uh, you know, there being like a, just a large supply, it feels like once you get that first job, it doesn't really matter as much. Obviously, if you have choices between jobs, pick jobs where you're going to learn more, where you're going to work on, you know, more interesting projects, where you're going to work with a better team. But really, getting that first job and that first year of experience is going to open up so many more doors for you. So if you're thinking about, like, what program language do I learn in the context of getting that first job, I would say, you know, you want to pick one of the big five and what actually probably matters uh, more in that context is like what's available in your, you know, are you in an area with a, a high concentration of .NET developer or companies that are using .NET or JavaScript or, you know, Ruby on Rails or whatever it is and learning those companies and then learning that language that is going to get you that first job. And then from there, suddenly, you know, the, the skies will clear and you'll have a much broader opportunity because you'll just be less of a risk um once you have a, a year or two of experience yes i'll definitely echo that um even from my past experience like 100 percent that has been useful so uh, i'll repeat that 100 times if i have to um <laughs> one of the uh, other cool thing is that even like as as you know you hear about other people being engineers and being yourself an engineer at the end of the day one of the things that's quite important for people to keep track of is i guess their sanity <laughs> the way i'm putting that is that you as an engineer have, you know, your, your main responsibility during the day, but you also got free time at the end of the day, uh, just to be sure that you're balancing everything and make sure you're sane at the end of the day. One of the topic, I guess I ask myself a lot is, does everybody need like a side project? Does everybody need some, like, I guess this mindset of always doing something, even though it's your free time at the end? Cause I do know that could be a big question for a lot of, I guess, younger engineers out there. So, you know, uh, I think that it depends on what your long-term goals are. Right. Um, I think some people have the goal of being financially independent by a certain time or some people have a goal of, you know, doing their own startup or other people have a goal of, um, you know, getting a job at a fang company. Um, you know, I, I definitely feel like side projects are super fun because what they let you do is they let you. Well, and, and this actually is worth saying, like they've been super fun for me because they let me do stuff in a software development context that is unmoored from the constraints of my day job. So if I, I for a long time, I, I ran a, a website that it was, um, it doesn't matter, it was a directory of, of uh, businesses in my state. Um, doesn't matter what the directory was about, but I was able to play around with things on that website that I, couldn't have done during my day job. I, I did things like integrated a recommendation engine that I found out there or played around with static site generation or, um, you know, worked on like, like I integrated some ad ad tech that I wasn't going to be able to do at my day job. And so if you're having fun doing that, I think that's great. Um, I think it's a really good outlet for, uh, not losing the passion for programming because you're kind of directing all of it. I think it's also a really good thing because again, you get to like see scope of things outside of your software development world, whether that's QA, talking to customers or talking to users, if it's an open source library or something like that, um, even just product management, 
right? Deciding, hey, what features am I going to build? I have, because even though you don't have constraints to the business, you still have constraints, right? You don't have unlimited time. So you have to pick and choose stuff, right? How are you going to prioritize things? Now, if you listen to that description of a side project and you think, oh my God, that sounds like misery, then I, then I think that there are other kinds of side projects you could do or you could skip doing it entirely. Like I think it is totally legitimate to go to um, a job, work from you know eight to five or and take an hour lunch and be done, right? That's a totally legitimate lifestyle choice. I will say that you need to be prepared for the ramifications of that, which is you won't learn as much as somebody who is doing their eight to five plus also you know spending two or three hours a night or two or three hours a week even working on a side project. It's just, you know, uh, I shouldn't say you definitely won't learn more. Chances are you won't learn more, right? Like people learn at different rates. So it's possible that you could learn enough faster that you would be good with that 40 hours a week. But given the same rate of learning, someone who spends more time in software is going to learn more. So, and this isn't to shame anybody. And I don't, I'm not a huge fan of hustle culture. I think it's more just a question of, I wouldn't expect to be able to, if, if, if I had a brother, which I don't, and I went and I ran every day and he ran once a week, there's no way he could justifiably expect to be as fast a runner as I was, right? There's just, that, that doesn't make sense. And software development is not running, but there are analogies. And so if you want to, um, get better faster, I would say side projects are a good thing. If you don't and you want to be a good developer and and put in your time and you know do an honest day's labor for an honest day's wage, that's great too. I don't I don't judge either way. I just think you should approach that decision with your eyes wide open. Yes, I like that. Uh in terms of just you know, there's not a right answer to this question. Um just because everybody's different. Every individual is different at the end. And then I think if we look at the um, important part is that if you're able to just learn something new every day, whether it be on a side project or even on your free time, I think that's probably the essence here is that the aside from your main responsibility every day at your job, whatever, eight to five, nine to five, yes, you're obviously learning something. But if you're able to use your free time and just, you know, while keeping sane and also learn something from day to day, I think that's probably the best way we would describe it is that that's probably going to be super beneficial in the long run at the end. So far, like, these are all absolutely great advices in terms of, like, how new developers should, you know, look at their day-to-day because -day, it's real problems that, you know, me and you face even today. A lot of these, like, you know, hardware stuff sometimes I like talking about that as well. Um, I mean, just, just I guess, to, to recap, even, like, for somebody who's interested to get into a developer advocate role, what, what kind of general tips would you have for them as well, actually? Sure. So I think if you wanted to do DevRel... I think, um, you know, there's a spectrum there, right? Uh, there's the people that are the speakers at the conferences and they fly around. Well, they used to fly around a lot and they kind of all know each other and, and whatnot. And then there's um, a documentation aspect. There's the community aspect. And so I think, um, you know, my best advice, if you want to get into a developer advocate role, and actually this is probably good advice for getting into any role, is find opportunities to do it and i guarantee you if you're a developer listening to perry's podcast right now and you work for a company that has a marketing department and if you go ask that marketing department hey can i 
write a blog post or can you help me write a blog post? They will be thrilled, right? They'll jump up and down for joy because technical blog posts are really, I guess I should be careful here. There may be some companies where they'd say, no, thank you. But many, many companies would be happy to have you write a blog post. And so I think that if you're interested in being a in a developer relations role, then you should be aware that that's going to be community facing, which means you need to take steps to like build a community, right? Or like interact with the community. And so that could be, again, the blog post is a great example. I think going to a meetup and just talking at a meetup or even just going to a meetup and doing some small talk with people or representing your company at a, at a meetup or going to a conference and like finding ways to interact with the people that you might be, if you were hired as a developer advocate, interacting with professionally, those are all tastes of what the job will be like. And I think that's always a good thing to get before you try to kind of move into that role full time, right? So think about, do I want to spend time talking to people? Do I want to spend time speaking? Do I want to spend time writing? And then find some ways to work that into your current job, right? And that could either be at your current job or if things are slammed at your current job, you know, maybe there's something you can do outside of that, right? I mean, every open source project in the world would be happy to have to take someone, um, take someone's time to do a quick start guide. Right, I guarantee you there's no open source library right now that if you went and they didn't have a quick start guide and you went and you, you wrote one for them, they would accept that pull request like that. And that would, that would be great practice for DevRel. That's actually amazing. Um, just because I guess today even like you really spoken to all the different kind of audience that exists in the world. You, you've spoken to all the aspiring entrepreneurs. You've spoken to all the aspiring authors, aspiring new developers, and just anybody who's a techie at the end of the day. So I think I just want to say a big thank you for just sharing this knowledge to, to begin with. Um, so yeah, big thank you to that. One thing I do want to mention is uh, where can people follow you actually with all the great content that you've been putting out? Sure. Yeah, that's great. Um, so you can go to letters to newdeveloper.com or you can just Google that and it should pop up. I am also on Twitter at M-O-O-R-E-D-S, Moreds, or MoreDS. Um, and I tweet fairly regularly and uh, there's a contact form on the letterstudentdeveloper.com uh, site. And I would love to hear from anybody, uh, whether this is you know, feedback that I said something that really spoke to you and you thought was really wise or feedback that I, what I said was totally nuts and, you know, uh, should never be said in public again. I want to hear both both sides. So if you're listening to this podcast and you want to give me feedback, please come find me. I'd love to hear from you. Amazing. That's the best way to give your feedback on both sides of the medal. Hey, anyways, thank you so much again, Dad, for being on the show and I'll catch you guys on the next one.